A crowd had gathered on the hillside of the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. They wanted to hear and see Jesus. He speaks to them in Matthew's Gospel in what we've come to call the Sermon on the Mount. And among many topics that he speaks on, he comes to a point of teaching them about prayer. And he begins with four words describing for us who God is. He says, Our Father in heaven. On these four words, one commentator writes, quote, In first century Jewish Palestine, children were powerless social dependents, and fathers were viewed as strong providers and examples on whom their children could depend. End of quote. It's tragic that today there are many with a radically different experience of father. Fathers have abandoned them. Fathers have been powerless or choose to be powerless to provide for them. Fathers have abused them. So it's important for us to understand that in the context of Jesus' teaching on this prayer, he is speaking about a father who truly loves, a father who can be depended upon to meet needs, not their own primarily, but the, the needs of their children and family. Father who eagerly seeks the well-being of their children, and when disciplining, does it only so that goodness will prevail. This is who Father God is in reality. And men, and I call upon the men in this church who have a chance to be male father figures at least, to follow the example of the one who sets the table for real fatherhood, God himself. Jesus continues his prayer example in what would be called the your petitions, an awareness of what God desires. First, your name be hallowed. God wants to be recognized as a holy God because he is holy, without imperfection, pure. God, our loving Father, especially wants to be hallowed by us who declare that we are followers of his Son. Secondly, he says, your kingdom come. God wants his kingdom to come, and God wants us to want his kingdom to come. The kingdom of God is embodied in the person of Jesus. His coming is really an answer to this petition. And God wants his kingdom, Jesus, to be in us so that through us, Jesus comes in our world today by how we live, by what we say, by how, by how we treat one another. Third, he says, your will be done. As Jesus' son was fully engaged and invested in God's ways, so God wants us to be invested in Jesus so that by him we will live out the ways of God in our family life, in our neighborhood life, in our work life, in our retirement life, in our school life, in life, all of life. God wants his will to be done by us. Jesus now moves on in this prayer teaching 
by what I refer to this morning as the Our Us petitions, an acknowledgement of what we need. And he begins, our daily bread for today. God provides the daily bread we need to feed our bodies. Perhaps it's through our own labors in a garden. But it's also through the ability to work and earn and to thank God for farmers and gardeners who provide for us and we have the wherewithal to purchase what is needed to provide for our daily bread. Many in the world do not have that. We are among the fortunate. But God also provides the daily bread of life we need to feed our minds and our souls. Jesus He gives us Jesus. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the scriptures. He gives us relationships with other followers of Jesus, other believers. This becomes then our daily bread possibility for growth by how we think and how we are inside, which becomes how we live outwardly. He continues by identifying another need we all have of our sins being forgiven whether we call them our debts, our trespasses, or our sins, they're virtually all the same. He's looking at not today now, he's looking at yesterday. What's happened? What have I done? What have I failed to do? What have I said? What have I failed to say? God is eager and very willing to forgive our sins. That was the plan he had in sending Jesus to rescue us from them. All he asks of us is to be like him, in forgiveness. He says it this way, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus is serious about this. So serious that he mentions it again after completing the prayer. Listen to what he says in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 14. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, Your father will not forgive your sins. Wow. It's a text we like to overlook. It's seriously challenging. If we hold grudges, if we exact revenge, which we call getting even, and nobody ever gets even, it's always ramped up a bit more. If we do those, if we gossip about other people directly or indirectly, if we choose not to forgive, here's what's happening. We are saying to God by our behavior that we don't buy into either him nor his plan. That's what's happening. The truth is that love is revealed by forgiveness. It is thwarted by unforgiveness. Not forgiving is therefore not loving, and above all other character traits, God is love. And we, the church, are to be like God, most particularly like his son Jesus, whom he sent to aid and rescue us. After all, we are his body, the body of Christ. Should the body be different than Christ, or should it be like him? Who on the cross looked at his accusers, all who had worked against him in his years of ministry, and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
That's where we ended last Sunday. This has been a review. So join me in praying the part of the Lord's Prayer we have gone through and today's phrase as well. It's on the screen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Jesus comes now to the third and final Our Us petition in this prayer. As he prays, he's now facing the future. He's been at today with our daily bread. He's been at yesterday with our sin. And now he faces tomorrow and says, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There are many difficult days about to come upon these followers of Jesus who heard him teach that day on a hillside north of Galilee. Their tomorrows would be troubling at least. For the twelve, as well as the hundreds who have been healed, taught, miraculously fed, and blessed by Jesus, they have no idea what's coming for him, let alone for them. That is certainly in the context of Jesus' thoughts in teaching them about prayer. But there's an important context for us to note in the scope of temptation in Jesus' day compared with temptation as we use and understand the word today. Hebrew thinking had a broader view of temptation that could go down the road of disobedience and tragedy if one gave into it, or it could be more of a test that would validate a person's faith as being their genuine priority over what they were being tested or tempted upon. It comes so subtly week and a half ago, my oldest grandson, who turned 16 earlier this year, went for his driving exam. He passed his written exam. He was very excited, called right away to let me know he had done so well. I said, oh, you did a lot better than I did. He says, you remember? Thanks a lot, kid. (laughs) He didn't call me after the driver test because he didn't pass it. As he was driving the car and doing very well, the instructor who was sitting in the passenger seat said, okay, get it back up to speed now at 30 miles an hour as they entered a school zone. He did what she said. She said, you just failed the test. He said, I did what you told me. And she said, but it was wrong. You'll have lots of people in your car telling you what to do. This is a strong lesson for you. Ouch. He's going again on Monday to try it all over. He has a plan. He has learned. You know, this notion of temptation and God is difficult to deal with, but I want to read you a part of Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is just beginning his ministry. And in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And we read on in the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 4, the temptations that were given to him, basically all of which were shortcuts to the things he was going to do anyway, but he was going to do it his father's way, not the devil's way. And it says, he did not sin. How many of you, like Jesus, have been tempted but did not sin? Anybody? I can't put my hand up. (laughs) We're different. We need his help all the time, do we not? But temptation and testing can come in similar forms. And if we yield to it, that's a temptation for bad, for things to be not godly. But if we are able, with God's help, to withstand it, it's been a test, and with his help, we have passed, and we can move on. In his letter, James, the half-brother of Jesus, makes a clear distinction of tempting and testing. And this is very helpful for us in understanding Jesus' phrase in this prayer. In James 1, 13 to 15, we read, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. A couple things to note here. God doesn't tempt. Test? Oh, yes. Take-home tests, surprise quizzes, they come regularly. But he does not tempt. And he is not tempted by anything the evil one may say. In contrast, James also writes in the beginning of James 1, verses 2 to 4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Satan clearly tempts to bring out the worst in our life experience. God clearly tests to bring out the best. And he's with us in it when the tests happen. Listen to other ways this final phrase is translated. Don't let us yield to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, the New Living Translation. Rescue us every time we face tribulation and set us free from evil, the Passion Translation. They're helpful in getting the fullness of this line of Jesus in this prayer. However, the overall point of this final phrase is not the beginning, it's the end. The essence is deliverance or rescue from the clutches and the ways of the evil one, Satan. To say it another way, this petition asks God for protection, and when we fall, deliverance. And for the Holy Spirit, our counselor and guide, to lead us in the ways of righteousness. 
This is the end of the Lord's Prayer as given by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. It stops here. But it doesn't end for the church here. This ends Jesus' prayer. Well, let me correct that phrase. Jesus wasn't teaching us a prayer in Matthew 6. He was teaching us how to pray. We have made it a prayer. There's nothing wrong with that. We have made it a prayer that we say every Sunday in worship. And churches all over the world do that. I'm not suggesting in any way it's wrong to pray this as a prayer. But there's so much more to it than simply saying the words that Jesus taught. And that's what I've tried to unwrap for us. The depth, the insight, the fuller understanding of these phrases and what they mean and how they need to be incorporated into the other prayers we pray as we pray through our life. By the 3rd century A.D., the Lord's Prayer had become a central part of worship. An additional phrase, not in Matthew's original gospel, not in the early manuscripts, was added to the prayer and later added but noted to Matthew 6.13. These words, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Most Bible scholars agree that this ending came from 1 Chronicles 29.11. Here's the context. David is king. Solomon is coming after him. David knows it. So does Solomon. David's been told by the Lord that he cannot build the temple of God on the mount, Mount Moriah, in Jerusalem, but that his son Solomon would build it. But David, wanting to be a helpful father, asks all the leaders of Israel to gather together what is needed for the building of the temple so that the supplies will be there and ready when Solomon begins to build the temple God has said he wants him to build. There's an outpouring of everything needed and more to build the temple. And so David praises God in front of all the people and among many other things he prays and in his prayer are these words. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything on earth is yours. Excuse me, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. While this ending was not in the original teaching of Jesus about prayer, it is clearly in the scripture and has become an integral part of Christian worship for centuries, including the worship we've done here for decades, saying the Lord's Prayer. But this is a lesson on how to pray. So let me conclude with this. We put God's interests first by acknowledging who our God is and by acknowledging what our God wants. That's the pattern of his prayer teaching. And then we express our interests by acknowledging what we need, daily bread, forgiveness, and deliverance when we fail. It's interesting that Archbishop Trench once wrote, quote, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, and it isn't. 
God is not reluctant about what he teaches us through his son in this prayer. But prayer is laying hold of God's highest willingness. He teaches us how to pray into God's highest willingness. He wants what's best for us. He wants what's right for us. He wants what makes us whole and healthy. May that be the way we learn to pray, alone and together. Thank you. Amen is right.